Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll get there in just a moment. Romans chapter 8. Today is the second to last installment of Hope 2020, and perhaps the most appropriate. Today, we're going to be talking about hope in the midst of illness and disease. It's because of a number of factors. When you say the word COVID right now, we can almost forget that we're talking about a disease. We're talking about politics. We're talking about lifestyle changes. We're talking about businesses that can or cannot make it. We're talking about a bill that will or will not make it through the house to help people in the midst of shutdown. We're talking about international travel not happening. It's hard to remember sometimes the root. We're talking about a physical disease. And in a nine-week series, asking ourselves, staring into the abyss of all these dark things in our world, uh, it's important to ask, which we're doing this morning, where is God in the midst of disease? Where does disease come from? Did God make it? Is he the one who makes me sick? Did he make my grandma sick? If God is loving, why hasn't he done something about this? Can we ask God to just stop COVID? Are we allowed to do that? Is that allowed? These are critical questions to those women, men, children who are people of the book. We believe that the Bible is from God to humanity to ask ourselves, what is God telling us about all these things? And so uh, as broad as a topic as this is, entire books are written on it, I'm going to try to run Lightning McQueen fast through this. Sorry, I have children. Uh, That was a Disney reference. Here in the next 25 or 30 minutes. Yeah, I can hear your laughter from home. Uh, But we're going to see what we can do. So lightning fast, here we go. Read with me. First century pastor... Apostle Paul, oh, allow me to give you the the major point first, and then we're going to do two sub-points beneath it. So technically, it's a three-point sermon. We're going to go fast as we can go, okay? Number one, here's where hope comes from in the midst of disease. I have hope when I remember that God is wise. I have hope when I remember that God is wise. And we're going to talk about two things underneath his wisdom. The first, let's just read Romans 8, 18. Apostle Paul, first century. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. Amen? For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and from suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us full give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So if you're new to church, that sounded weird, but let me tell you about a great promise, what that just said. 
to everyone who is in right relationship with God. We've been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. He not only creates a new spiritual self for that person, he not only gives us total right standing with the Father immediately, he not only sends his spirit that he's working on us and making our character throughout the rest of our life more and more like Jesus to be a blessing to God and to the world, but one day he doesn't just take us home into heaven to have fun in some fluffy, ethereal, sitting on a cloud sense. The church, each of us actually get a new physical body. That's promised clearly in scripture. It's fascinating. Scriptures tell us that Jesus, when he was raised, he was bodily raised. He had 2,000 years ago and still has a physical body. The difference will be that when we see Jesus, he'll be the only one with scars. And we will have all eternity to thank him. We'll have all eternity to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. It's fascinating to think that the second person of the Trinity is a male forever because he is a human forever. He is a Jew forever. If you love Jesus, there's a lot, there are a lot of things that are redeemed, but the physical creation, including your body, is one of those things that will be redeemed. And that's important for us to think about when it comes to disease, because right now there's death and there's, the de- there's decay. And the scripture is saying there's a groaning that's going on where I'm yearning for the day when I'll be released from death and decay. It's not here in this world. It's later. Right now we are still living out all of the drama all of the wreckage, the carnage that we brought into the world in Genesis 3 when we rebelled against our creator. When creator and creation divorce, there are certain losses in a divorce. Some of you guys know. Divorce always creates loss, and that's what happened in Genesis 3 between God and humanity. And here's the sub-point for those of you who are note-takers that I want you to get out of Romans 8. God allowed disease to exist when he gave us free will. God allowed disease to exist when he gave us free will. Now, these are theological deep waters, but let me break it down as quickly as I can. It is real easy to say, oh, if there's a big God and he's sovereign and he's powerful and he's all loving, how could he let all of these terrible things happen? And you ask that, and you've got an open mind and you're actually asking, I'm going to answer and say, oh, human beings brought sin and death and all these terrible things into the world when we rebelled against God. Here it is in Genesis 3. And then you're going to say, as my daughter asked just a month or two ago, then you're going to say, I wish he didn't let us choose. Why does a good and loving God put the man and the woman in a garden? They're sinless, they're perfect. There's the tree of life. They can live forever eating from it. But there's also another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, do not eat of that tree. The day that you do, you will die. So, is my daughter crazy? No, not at all. It's very logical to look at the situation and go, I wish he hadn't even given us free will. I wish he hadn't given us choice. I wish that tree wasn't in the garden so they couldn't screw things up for everybody. And yet, the question strikes at the very heart of how love operates and what love is. Because you see, love is you Freely choosing me, not under compulsion. 
The difference between a wedding, ah, there are kids at home, I shouldn't say that. How do I illustrate this in a kid-friendly way? I'll say it this way. If I, as a man, have a gun pointed at a woman, it's not a wedding ceremony. Let's just say that. If there's force, if there's compulsion, it is not a joy-filled, willing covenant. Okay? And the garden, God was creating all of what was necessary for a joy-filled and willing covenant where humanity willingly got to choose God. We had to have the option to not want him, to not choose him. Without free will, there is no love. If you want your little theological uh, tidbit, write that one down. Without free will, love does not exist. That's actually the answer. If you want a world without love, then take away free will. Second bullet point under this, I have hope when I remember that God is wise. God allows disease to exist in the lives of individuals for the purpose of his glory. This is a tough one. God allows disease to exist in the lives of individuals for the purpose of his glory. And I'm gonna blaze through four examples quickly. The story of Job, if you're familiar. Job wasn't sick because he was being punished for something wrong that he did. God was allowing Job to be tested frankly, because he was showing off to the heavenly court. He was showing off to Satan how strong Job's character was. He was bragging on Job in a sort of way. He said, look what Job can go through and he will still honor me. That one's a tough pill to swallow if you think that that Jesus only ever wants you to be happy, healthy. That's a tough pill to swallow. Or the healing of a man born blind in John 9, 3, the uh, religious elite come to Jesus and say, hey, was this guy born blind because of his sins or his parents' sins? Verse three, Jesus says, neither. What? Huh? So Jesus isn't gonna fit inside you and I's neat little theological constructs. He's gonna keep going. Listen, you need to see something. That's the irony. You need to see, so this man was born blind. Watch what I can do. And he heals him. I've asked you this before, ARCF, but if you're new, I want you to hear it again. Are you okay if God in his wisdom allows you to be sick? He allows you to be hurt in some way. Some part of this broken, fallen condition, the now but not yet, the he has come and he's redeemed us on his cross, but he hasn't come back for his, his uh, bride yet and all the brokenness in between and yet the light being pushed out into the darkness. If, if in this in-between time you suffer, but people see Christ rightly because of your suffering, is that okay with you? Is it okay with you? If you want to know if your heart really loves Jesus Christ, that's a really good question to ask yourself because he is the Lord when I'm willing to surrender anything. He allows Lazarus to die. John eleven fifteen. he's weeping with them. And he says, it was good for your sake that we didn't come here earlier. He knew out of his deep love for Lazarus that he would have been there and he would have wanted to take care of his friend. He would have healed his friend. He says, it was good for your sake that I wasn't here yet because you need to see this. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Second Corinthians 12, seven through nine, Paul describes a thorn in his flesh that he asks God three times, would you take this away from me? Scripture doesn't say what it was, but some kind of physical ailment. 
And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you. It's fascinating, beautiful, challenging that Paul didn't ask a fourth time. I don't think there's any biblical command around asking three times, but he heard God say, my grace is sufficient for you. And so he stopped. Wow. God allows disease to exist in the lives of individuals for the purpose of his glory. Am I okay with him glorifying himself through my suffering? Because you think, see, Jesus started off by glorifying the Father through his suffering. He started off saving me and you through his suffering. He has already suffered and he's our leader. If I suffer and it gives God glory, am I okay with that? All of this points to his wisdom. He knows more than you and I know. He has perspective that you and I just do not have. But if we embrace that he is wise, that gives a lot of hope. It gives a ton of hope. This means there's no part of COVID-19 that Jesus doesn't understand. No one's gotten sick without him knowing it. We, we're, we've been subjected at times to terror. If you guys remember what it felt like at the end of February and the beginning of March, everyone's talking about, you can be asymptomatic and blah, 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 and, and, and one third of people are, are going to die. But there was terror. And you know who wasn't afraid? Jesus. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over everything. Everything. And that's a good thing because he loves you more than you love you. He is more powerful than us. And when I remember that God is wise, that's not just that he has the knowledge, but he knows what to do with it. When I remember that God is wise, I find my hope there. My hope bucket gets filled up. There are holes in the bottom of your hope bucket if you're anything like me. You want to plug some of those holes? Read the revelation of God to you and see his wisdom and his wisdom and his wisdom. And his, man, he knows what he's doing. Wow, he's redeeming humanity while we're still raging against him. He's saving us. Oh, he's wise. This is a roundabout way of saying he's in control. He knows what he's doing. So first, I have hope when I remember that God is wise. Second, I have hope when I remember that God is powerful. I have hope when I remember that God is powerful. Three examples I want to take you through very quickly. In Exodus 9, 8 through 12, this is the story, if you're not familiar, of uh, Israel is enslaved in Egypt about 3,400 years ago, and God raises up a prophet named Moses and tells Moses, hey, go talk to Pharaoh and command Pharaoh on behalf of Yahweh, let my people go, all right? And Pharaoh repeatedly will not bow the knee to Yahweh. And so he gets smashed, plague after plague after plague, that um, not just Pharaoh, but the entire nation of Egypt have to suffer through as God shows his power over Pharaoh. In verses 8 through 12 of chapter 9, God makes boils come over all of the Egyptians' bodies. It says head to toe. And then at the right time, when it was appropriate, he makes the boils go away. Is that fascinating? Now, if you and I have a really simplistic theology like a five-year-old, uh, Satan, bad, God, good, we would think Satan is the one who sends boils, and we would think God is the one who takes them away. 
but we're not five years old anymore, are we? There are some at home that are five. Hi, guys. Hi, kiddos. Love you guys. For those of us who are grown-ups, God sent the boils and God removed them. This means that on the molecular level, even perverted molecules like a disease still obey him. Is that damning or what? I'd give my left arm to get myself to obey him for a few hours straight. Cancer obeys Yahweh. It has never successfully defied him, ever. Death has never defied Yahweh successfully, ever. The valley of dry bones, son of man, prophesy. And then the dry bones get flesh and sinews and skin and there's an army standing there. The raising of Lazarus, the raising of Jesus. Nothing in our broken world has ever successfully defied Yahweh. Not in the created order like that. Human beings defy because we are given free will. Angels defy, they were given free will. But diseases, trees, rocks, no. The Psalms say that the trees of the field clap their hands and praise to him, that the mountains bow down. They obey. God makes the Egyptian boils come. That means he's got the power, he has the right, and he is not evil in any way when he allows the brokenness of the world to come full force onto somebody. You might be upset inside yourself right now. I want to I submit to you, because I don't have the time to park on this. When we see God exercising God-like authority and it makes us upset and we say, that's not right, we are ultimately just sitting in the judge's seat telling God what he can and cannot do, which is very dangerous. Uh, so I, I want to encourage you to take a deep breath and really think it through. Um, is a loving God allowed to inflict pain? Especially if that's pain that we brought into the world through our rebellion. Well, is your mom allowed to take a spoon to your behind? You, you can't say that pain can never flow from a person who loves you deeply. You, you can't say that. Second, Naaman and Gehazi. These guys are a little bit more obscure Bible characters unless you grew up in church. In 2 Kings 5, uh, both of these men's stories are told back to back. Naaman is a guy who's a, a Syrian army commander who has leprosy, and through the ministry of the prophet Elisha, he is healed of his disease. And then Gehazi, a Jew, he's uh, Elisha's assistant and is greedy for money and goes and does this manipulative thing. He lies and blah, blah, blah. And because of his deceit, Elisha says to him, you're going to suffer from Naaman's leprosy. Oh boy. Now there's tremendous hope in that to see all the way back in the book of Kings that the, the uh, Worship of Yahweh is going to continue to roll out outside of Israel, that others are going to see God for who he is and worship and give uh, praise and honor and glory. But again, to see healing and kind of a curse of the exact same thing, of leprosy, God will dish it out and he'll save, dependent on a number of things. In one situation, he's dealing with repentance, and so what does he do? He decides to heal. In another situation, he's dealing with evil and greed inside a man's heart. And so he smacks him by giving him a physical disease that shows him a picture of what his inside looks like. Brothers and sisters, do you and I trust God enough 
that even if he wanted to give us a physical disease to teach us something, to show us something, do we trust him? So first, I have hope when I remember that God is wise. Second, I have hope when I remember that God is powerful. Third, here's the most exciting part, if you love Jesus. And if you don't love Jesus, this is where I want you to pay attention. I have hope when I remember that Jesus' tomb is empty. I have hope when I remember that Jesus' tomb is empty. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Also the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read starting at verse 17. Talking to Christians, a church in northern Greece. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they only think about this life here on earth. But we, Christians, we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Was that present tense, or was that present tense? He's saying Christ is on his throne right now in heaven. That's good news. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. We will, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. What? The living Christ the fact that he not only died the death I should have died after living the life I should have lived, he was resurrected by God's power the third day. Guys, I know it's 2020. I know you, you watched plenty of Discovery Channel and History Channel and you're way too smart for that. I'm, I'm too smart for it too. That's silly, right? If I can't fit it under a microscope or see it with a telescope, it can't possibly be real, right? The parts of this book, just for those of you at home, some of you need to know, the parts of this book that are written as first-hand accounts of Jesus' life, uh, there are source documents of these books that were written before the year 180 AD. Okay? More than 1,800-year-old actual pieces of paper that show with remarkable continuity these testimonies of people that knew Jesus recorded what he did, what he said, the miracles he did, his death and his resurrection. And there are a lot more texts, very old texts. There are a ton more texts testifying to Jesus' life, death and resurrection than what testify to the life of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and Julius Caesar combined. And I want to ask you a question. How come nobody ever says, well, I don't, I don't know if Julius Caesar was really in charge of Rome. I think his followers after the fact made that up. 
I don't think Plato was really that smart of a philosopher. I bet Plato was just like a press guy. He worked for the newspaper and he knew how to write a good story about how awesome he was. And then his followers later on said that he was a really genius philosopher. No, you see, the reason we come up with nonsense about Jesus is because we have the, we do the, the daring thing to open it up and go, okay, words of Jesus, and his life bears weight on my soul. His life bears weight on my entire existence. He tells me, Greg, pick up your own cross, the death of you, the end of you, and follow me. Julius Caesar does not tell you to make your entire life about him. Plato and Socrates do not tell you to leave everything. By the way, more than 2,000 years later, they are not still telling you to leave everything and follow him. Jesus is. The cost of believing that Jesus Christ was a real historical character, the cost of believing that we have the accurate words of Jesus Christ here recorded in the Bible is a very, very high cost. And so there are a lot of enemies of it. I don't want to give over my whole life to him. I want to be in charge of me. So I want to plead with you to think through that. If you already love Jesus, you find hope that his tomb is empty. You find hope that he is on his throne right now in heaven. You find hope that there's nothing going on in the world that he doesn't know about and isn't going to heal one day. Where does my hope come from in 2020? God's position, his unshakable position of knowledge, power, wisdom, seated at the right hand of the Father, resurrected. All of these things give hope. Because the worst thing that can happen to me is that I suffer in this life and then I die and then I'm with Jesus and I am healed and I am whole and I'm not suffering and there's no more sin. That's my worst case scenario. That's a really, really sweet gig to have that be your worst case scenario. So what? Those were the three points. Let's ask ourselves some practical questions. So what? And this is particularly if you already love Jesus. God's power and sovereignty over disease play out in five different ways. We're going to do these briefly, just things that I believe Scripture clearly tells Christians to do in light of God's power and sovereignty over disease. Number one, God tells Christians to pray for the sick. God tells Christians to pray for the sick. James 5, 14 and 15. Call the elders together, anoint with oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. The oil itself isn't magical, it's a symbol. I want to encourage you, those of you who are at home who love Jesus, put a little sheet of paper in the front of your Bible, write down the names of friends and people you know who are sick. So every morning, open that thing up and see their name immediately and ask God, right? Like the persistent widow, ask, seek, knock. Ask God to heal them out of his mercy. God tells Christians to pray for the sick. And that's no small thing, by the way. Asking the one who really has the power, that makes the most sense, by the way. Secondly, God tells Christians to love the sick. I want you to take a look at Matthew 25, verse 36, if you're going to do a study this week. Hope you are. God tells Christians to love the sick. You can run errands for somebody who is stuck at home right now, right? Go do some grocery shopping for them, something. If they're concerned about leaving the house, go take care of something for them. Send somebody a gift, if you're in the hospital and can't take visitors, I don't know if they're allowing those kind of things, but the idea is there. 
Third, God tells Christians to steward the earth, which can provide cures for sickness. So it doesn't take a long history lesson to know that uh, human beings cannot create matter from nothing. I know we just got into a science lesson here. But when very, very smart human beings are in a lab and they're mixing things together and splitting this molecule and doing this, doing that, they are always, always, always working with essential elements that already existed. Carbon already existed, helium, oxygen already existed. All these things already existed. And so when medicine is created, that is actually a human being stewarding God's creation, thinking it through, analyzing it, testing it, saying, how can we bring about healing and wholeness for this particular disease or this particular ailment? That is stewardship. No different than you over your garden trying to make sure that you pick weeds and there's water and there's sunlight and you keep vermin away. That is a stewardship of the earth that we were commanded in Genesis 1 to do. As we as a species, humanity, continue to steward the earth, we are going to find uh, things that continue to bless. That's where medicine comes from. Is You look at a plant that already existed because God made it, right? And we're just stewarding what God made. And sure enough, you find out that plant has some special benefit or something in it can be modified to create some other special benefit. So God tells Christians to pray for the sick. God tells Christians to love the sick. God tells Christians to steward the earth, which can provide cures for sickness. By the way, one of our vision statements for our church family is that we believe God has called us to be a model, an example of world-class stewardship. Stewardship of the earth is a part of that. How we steward God's money, how we steward God's real estate, how we steward our bodies, our relationships, All these things we're saying ultimately are the Lord's, and so we are merely managers of them, not owners. We're managers, not owners. So we manage and we steward the earth. Fourth, God tells Christians to steward our own bodies, thereby avoiding sickness. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, 10, 31, Proverbs 23, 20, and 21, 25, verse 16, Philippians 3, verse 19. I put a lot of verses in there because I knew you guys weren't gonna like that one. I know I don't, okay? Our bodies ultimately belong to the Lord if we belong to the Lord, amen? Okay? To steward them would avoid sickness many times in the first place. Not always. Uh, There was one verse I didn't put in here just in case I made a Baptist angry, but there's one point where Paul says to Timothy, hey, make sure to drink wine from time to time. Don't drink just water for the sake of your stomach issues. Interesting. Very interesting. Paul says, take care of your body. And again, 1 Corinthians 6 is probably the most blatant. It belongs to the Lord. Treat it accordingly. You were bought at a high price. Fifth, God tells Christians to trust him. God tells Christians to trust him. James 1, 5 through 8 are probably the most important examples. So, So here's one little point on this before we wrap up. We don't like being told trust God because it sounds like that's just the end of the discussion. Is anybody with me at home or is it just me? Oh, trust God, honey, thanks. Like I don't feel listened to, don't feel validated. And now I feel like a loser because I clearly don't love Jesus very much because I don't trust God. That's my problem, you know. Trust God does not mean do nothing. If you hear do nothing, when someone tells you or the scripture tells you to trust God, you might be a Martha. 
If you know the story of Mary and Martha, you know what I'm talking about right now, where we grasp at control. We want to have our hands on the situation. We want to be doing something. When God says, trust me, he is not saying do nothing. What he means is make sure to sleep soundly after you do all the things that I have told you to do. Trust God means to sleep soundly after we do the things that he told us to do. Do you hear what I'm saying in that? We don't do the things that he has said, no, 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 I'm God, I have it covered. What has he told us to do? He has told us to pray for the sick. He has told us to love the sick. He's told us to steward the earth. He's told us to steward our own bodies. That's what he's told us to do with COVID-19. Does it sound like there's still an awful lot outside of those four things? Is there a lot swirling on in the world besides those four things? Absolutely. And that's where we trust God. I am going to pray for the sick and I hope that you will as well. I'm going to love the sick. I hope that you will as well. I'm going to steward the earth. I hope that you will as well. I'm going to steward my body. I hope that you will as well. And then we are all of us together who love Jesus. We are going to sleep well. At the end of those four obediences, we're going to sleep well, knowing we have obeyed the portion that Jesus gave to us. And then we rest because the rest belongs to him. Amen? Amen. Allow me to pray for us. Lord Jesus, those of us who love you, we really, really do want to trust you more. We really do. Would you please help us? As our brother prayed 2,000 years ago, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, Jesus, for those of us who are still exploring faith, not sure what we think of you, I do ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit's presence in these uh, lives, these minds and hearts. God, would you just help people along in their spiritual journey? Would you do that today by your mercy? Would you transform hearts by your mercy? Would you grant faith by your mercy? God, help us to please see how small and frail and limited we really are when we stare down the barrel of something as big as disease. But help us by faith to see how big you really are and to give you praise and honor and glory because of that bigness. We ask for this grace in Jesus' name, we pray. God's people said, Amen.